I don't think I have to convince you how polarized we are in our society today. There's a whole host of issues that you've learned not to share in mixed company. And when I say mixed company, I'm not talking about male, female. I'm talking about our tendency to surround ourselves with people who look like us, who think like us, who act like us. And so there's a number of things that you just don't talk about, whether it's immigration or tax reform, a whole number of things that we simply are afraid to broach because if you bring it up in that mixed company, you're leading yourselves into an argument. Rarely does it seem that we find ourselves in genuine discussion where people are sharing facts and thoughts in the hopes of trying to find some solutions, some understanding, or compromise. I was heartened, though, as I did my research this week. I found that in our 115th Congress, our current Congress, that we have some 50 fresh, freshman lawmakers who've signed on for a pledge of civility. Also discovered that there is 40 uh, of our congresspersons who, uh, 20 from each party, that have agreed that they will form a political caucus called the Problem Solvers Caucus, in which they have already agreed that on certain issues they will find compromise. Well, I would suggest to you that Christians should be leading the way in this endeavor. And I know it's also true that Christians are often going to disagree on a number of these issues. We will sometimes find ourselves on opposite sides. But we've got the common bond of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gave his life for us that should unite us. We're also taught to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek. So we should be able to find a way to talk to each other and have as the goal to find that common ground and show the world how it can be done. Well, that's the spirit of what we're going to try to do the next three weeks. Today we'll focus on the economic gap. Next Sunday we'll focus upon the racial barriers we experience in our society. And then we'll wrap up by looking at the religious distinctions that sometimes challenge us as we talk to each other. So I want you to know that you don't have to agree with everything I say today. That's okay. I just hope that I stimulate some discussion that enables us to try to find that common ground to guide our thinking a little bit more through the way of Christ. So today we're going to focus on the economic inequities we experience in our society and especially what are the things we can do to lift up that lowest rung of our, of our society to help provide greater opportunity for the poor. What we discover if you pay attention to the news is that gap, that economic gap, seems to be growing larger and larger every year. The latest statistics I've come across says that the top 1% earn on average $1.3 million a year. You go back to the 1980s, that 1% made 428000 so three times as much. While at the same time, the bottom 50% currently makes about 16000 in pre-tax income, and that is largely unchanged since the 1980s. Now, if you add in the earned income tax credit, you discover it's a little bit better because of that added in. But still, the statistics are very similar. Not much change at the bottom. As a matter of fact, one st statistic that kind of blows my mind away, the, lar the, the eight richest men in the world control more wealth than the bottom half of the world, 3.6 billion people, eight people. Now, 
You may not be too concerned about the top 1%. I don't think we got any of those here today, do we? But there's still some stats to show us how real this problem is. The top 40% make 10, take 10 times the wealth of those in the bottom 60%. It's also true that two-thirds of those who are in that lower 60% have no savings whatsoever, which makes them so vulnerable to any life issue that comes along. One bad health situation, and they're on a downward spiral that takes forever for them to dig out of. The income inequity in our society is the largest since 1928, which was right before the Great Depression. And finally, in Indiana, 2017 statistics, just to bring this closer to home, 906,000 people and 77 people were defined as below that poverty level, which is 24,340 for a family of four. How many of you like to try to make it on that these days? Well, I'm not an economist, and as I studied, I did learn that some level of income inequity is good. It, it, in theory, drives economic growth because those in lower rungs of society want more, and so that creates ingenuity, entrepreneurship. It does some good things for us. And likewise, the reverse is true, that in some socialist countries in which they try to keep things as equal as possible, productivity sometimes wanes. We also know that redistribution of wealth is tricky. When money is taken away, no matter how rich someone is, without some equal exchange or trust that that money is going to be well invested, it tends to lead to great resentment, which might be reflected in our recent uh, tax reform bill. But economists are also very clear that there's this threshold of inequity, that when it gets too large, it causes poverty that increases the number of problems that society faces, and that leads to increased cost. When there's more crime, more money has to be spent on safety. When there's greater health problems, that means insurance rates go up, hospital costs go up. In other words, trying to deal with the problems that are faced in the lower rungs of society is good for our economy. To work towards those solutions can benefit all. Now let me be really clear that this is not a political message I want to share with you today. There is times that sometimes the gospel does call us to speak to politics. When you've got to deal with policy that sometimes impacts the realities of the world, then we do need to speak to that. But as I look at this issue, I don't think either side really has a handle on the problems that are faced by the poor. I don't think either side has got a good handle on how to lift up the poor. You can look on one side and, and argue that the welfare system sometimes has certainly led to dependency among some. That certainly added to the deficit that we face in our country that we seem to want to continue to put off and put off the later generations. On the other hand, we know that an unchecked free market denies the history of corporate monopolies and ignores the role of human greed and our problems, and it ignores the inequity that we're looking at right now. I would suggest to you that Democrats need Republicans and Republicans need Democrats. And the more that we figure out how to partner with the private and public entities, we'll find better solutions and creative solutions to deal with the problems that are faced among the poor. And we need to learn from those persons that are working in those grassroots ministries that understand real and firsthand the problems that are faced. If we listen to them, we'll do so much better. 
But my big goal today is to help you look from a biblical perspective. What is the attitude God wants us to have for the poor? What does he call us to do? Uh, I assume many of you know the name Rick Warren, who wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Well, Rick Warren has shared in recent years a new understanding of God's concern for the poor. He, he did a thorough study of the scriptures and discovered that there are some 2,000 verses, 2,000 verses that speak of God's concern for the poor. And he's kind of ashamed of himself. He says, how did I go to Bible college and two seminaries and earn a doctorate in ministry and not see this until just recently? And Rick Warren's right. I encourage you to read the Old Testament law. And I, I know it can be boring, all those endless laws. But if you look at them carefully, you'll discover that it shows God's desire to create a nation that would be different from all other nations. You'll see God's desire to make sure that the provisions, the needs of all persons in his nation would be met. And so many examples of that. The Torah speaks about the abuse that sometimes the wealthy do live out as they often take from those below them. You'll discover there are laws about forgiving debt of certain types of debt every seven years. If you study carefully the 25th chapter of Leviticus, you'll find this strange idea of the year of Jubilee that happens every 50 years, which calls for the release of prisoners, the freedom for slaves, debts to be forgiven, and land that has, has been sold off to be returned to the family of origins. We have no idea how well that was lived out or practiced, but it's in the law. It's suggested. And that 50th year, no one is to work. The land is to left, be left to lay on its own. So there is much said about God's concern for the poor. But the concept that I'm really intrigued with is this concept of gleaning. It's a very interesting understanding, and you heard it in today's scripture. And the way it's supposed to work with those who farm land, those who have grain, when you harvest your fields, you're to leave the edge of the field alone. It's to be left there. For those who are immigrants, those who are widows, those who are over. So the poor have a chance to go and find grain for themselves when they don't have land of their own. It's interesting that it's the edge of the field which makes it the easiest and means that they don't have to be trapped all over your property, which is probably a good thing. But also the law talks about those who have, have vineyards and those who raise olives. I don't know if you've been to the Mediterranean region, but if you do, you'll find lots of olive groves. And when, if you're there around harvest time, you'll see netting that's placed underneath them. And so when the olives get ripe, they drop. You come along, you shake the tree once in a while, and then they're processed. I assume in ancient days, the, the issue was they didn't have all that much netting that was precious. And so the law says for them to go from tree to tree and to go through just once. The same is said of the grapes. So when you go through your vineyard, you know when you're picking grapes, some of them are not going to be quite ripe. But you're to leave them for the immigrant, for the widow, and for the orphan. If you read the story of the book of Ruth in the Bible, it shares the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. It's the application of this gleaning law that we've just read about. 
And the story goes, if you've not read it, it's a short book, just four chapters. I encourage you to go home and read it today. But if you've not heard it before, the story goes like this. Naomi and her husband moved to Moab during a famine in Israel. While they're there, they have two sons who get married, have a family. And when tragedy hits and kills both Naomi's husband and her two sons, she's left with two daughter-in-laws. She encourages them to go to their own families, stay in Moab while she goes back to Israel. But Ruth chooses to stand by Naomi's side and goes back to Israel with her. And when they come back, they have no provision for themselves. And Naomi instructs Ruth to go and glean in the field of her husband's can Boaz. And as she does, Boaz notices her. He's heard of her character, her reputation for standing by Naomi. He instructs his servants to leave a little extra grain, just kind of throw it out there for her so that she has some extra grain. When Naomi discovers this, she works out the arrangement, and before you know it, Boaz and Ruth are married, and they produce a grandchild for Naomi that turns out to become the grandfather of King David, who's also in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a few things we can learn from this story of Ruth and Naomi. Notice how it suggests there should be provision for all and, and how the farmer who lays aside these crops are suggesting to the community his commitment and trust to the Lord that God will meet his needs. He's acknowledging that these crops left for the immigrant, for the widow, for the orphan, are God's crops to be shared with them. The second thing we learn from this is that it preserves the respect and dignity of those persons who come to glean the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan because it gives them something to do. They're using their hands to grab those crops. It gives them work. It gives them exercise. It helps them to continue to develop the skills that they might eventually apply to another job. In addition, when Ruth gathered those crops, she brought them home and she used that grain to bake bread. It preserves their dignity. And the last thing it suggests to us is that, in Ruth's case, it allowed Boaz to see her, to see her as a person, not just as a person in need, and to notice I'm sure she was a hard worker. And to also know and take note of her character for the stories that he's heard. And so it made a connection, a relationship that often we ignore when we reach out to those in need. And the good news is they did all that without any government bureaucracy. All it took was the voluntary effort of each farmer to lay aside those crops. No one had to get involved and simply worked. So what does this suggest to us today? Well, I think, first of all, it challenges us that whatever aid that goes to the poor, whether it is a ministry or if it's our government, we need to be attuned to the real needs and problems of those in that lowest rung of society. I don't know if you've heard of the cliff effect, but it's a very real thing that happens with our government support in many situations. Just let me give you one example. If a single mother who's got children relying upon government support, if she makes $11,000, if she gets a 50%, 50 cent per hour raise, that puts her above the threshold 
and she loses hundreds of dollars every month in child support for her children. You'd think common sense would suggest some graduated process that allows a person to work themselves slowly off that leniency. People in that area say that it takes like five years to build back up from what is lost from that government support. It also suggests we should be doing everything we can to support the dignity and respect. Just one good example, um, our youth group went to the caring place this Christmas season. Our youth group went and volunteered to help children uh, shop and, and get the toys and that they wanted as well as the gifts they'd give to their family. But those toys were donated or purchased through the donations that come. And the dollars that are spent are not real dollars. They're shopping dollars that's given by the caring place that is earned by those children as they faithfully go to the ministries and, and the learnings that is provided for them and they appropriately behave through that process. So they earn those dollars. Just a simple way to maintain their dignity. And finally, it's so important that we see the people that are in poverty. We often have this thing of us and them. And to begin to see people as they are and to look for their gifts and discover their abilities. Many ministries have, have discovered that their, their work takes off and is so productive when they employ those persons that they're trying to help. One of the best things I've ever done is take a Bridges Out of Poverty workshop. It's based on the book by Ruby Payne, excellent book to read that helps you to see our tendency to impose our middle-class values on people who have such different stressors in their life and to realize those stressors, they cause persons to have coping mechanisms so different from yours or mine. They have different values and they even have different language. So I encourage us to apply that leaning concept in all that we do. Appreciate the quote by Donna Beagle. It says, if you are judging, you cannot connect. If you cannot connect, you cannot communicate. If you cannot communicate, you cannot break down poverty barriers. So I invite you to share God's concern for the poor. He required of the people of Israel, and he requires it of us who wish to reflect his spirit. Let's invest in those things that truly help, offer respect to all persons regardless of their economic status, and see the God-given gifts each person brings without judgment.